This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, presented by Scree Gear, performance hunting apparel, performance layering system, and the risk-free promotion for the Whitetail Starter Bundle is still going for another week or so to the end of October. Buy it, try it for up to 14 days, money-back guarantee if you're not totally satisfied with the gear. And we do have the uh, Louisiana Bowhunter Code, L-A-B-H, 20% 20% off your first purchase. That won't apply to already discounted sale items and as well as the bundles because they're already discounted. But if you want to fill your cart item by item or you just want to pick up a few things and try it out, use the code LABH for 20% off your first purchase. And follow them on social media, YouTube. Find out all the things you need to know about Scree Gear right there and uh, all the media and stuff that they're putting out. So check them out. Shop online at ScreeGear.com. Kyler, it feels like I was sitting here like last week and we were prepping and recording a podcast talking about opening day and now it is October the 20th and we basically have a week, a little more than a week left in the month of October. It has flown by. Yeah, time flies when it's 87 degrees outside. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we did have one good weekend and I'll say... For those of you that, that listened to the podcast that we did with Ronnie um, that was released earlier this week, um, you know, following that, we, were, we recorded that over the weekend when we had the cool weather and we were all talking about what we had experienced out in the field 
and we got into the whole game camera situation. And I can say that, you know, kind of following up to that, and I shared some of this with you, actually. Um, I've actually got a couple of pictures of a few bucks that kind of got on their feet a little bit in the cool weather that I hadn't been seeing on camera. And actually spending a little bit of time out in the woods, I'm starting to see uh, some scraping activity, as a matter of fact, in a few places mm-hmm. that are pretty common where I normally see them. And um, another really interesting thing is I've got this one mature buck, the one I sent you the picture of with the funky-looking horn. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know what I, I'm not sure. He's funny. Yeah, I, asked you, I asked you if that counted as a brow tine or, uh, or a drop tine or just like a – I don't know what it is. It looks like it looks like you know what it looks like. It looks like he ran into a wall and just and just mushroomed the end of his main beam and it just forked out in three different directions. It looks like a discount drop time. Yeah, it looks like like an off-brand drop time. (laughs) (laughs) He's a cool deer. That's the kind of thing I like too. I love deer like that. Like I love unique deer because my take on that is anywhere I go, whether I go out you know to my own property or or somewhere out of state. Like, I'm always looking for something really unique because my take on it is when you kill a really unique horned buck, like, it is, you might kill a a, a nice eight point. I mean, a really nice eight point. But the the idea is, I mean, you're probably, if you're fortunate, will kill another eight point similar to him at some point if he's just kind of a typical eight point, right? Sure. But if you kill something really unique, he's probably the only one you'll ever kill like that makes them really unique and I, that kind of gets me going but what i was saying about the cold weather is that deer is very mature at, at this point anyway he's the most mature deer that i have on this 400 acre property and as of sunday following this cool front he is actually showing up and bullying other deer around i've actually got him sparring and chasing other bucks off so hmm. definitely an observed change in behavior with the little cool weather that we got so just an observation well, I've got so I, I, we were talking earlier this week about um, not having a lot on camera and trying to hone in on areas, places that are worth my time versus not worth my time. Because I don't, you know, hunting publicly, and I, I set up cameras on kind of flow through areas and trails just to see what's in, what's what's around. That's all. I'm not really putting them under feed trees much. I'm not obviously I'm not feeding, so I'm not seeing like attracting deer into where my camera is. So I finally got. Two, two good bucks on camera, totally different properties. Um, one's got a real drop tine on his right main beam. It's about three inches long. It's really cool. It, it actually like almost comes down behind his ear. It's, it's really neat. Um, and uh, that, that buck is where I shot one um, from the ground last year. Uh, and and um, later in the season, I got a really good buck on camera after I shot that first one. And I don't know if this is it just a year later with a drop time. I'm not sure. And then the other buck I have on camera, um, uh, I, I told my wife this, um, but uh, I, I mean it and I don't mean it at the same time. My family ruined me killing this deer because I had to hang out with him on Sunday and I should have hunted. And this buck came out at 415 under a persimmon tree that I hung a camera on a few weeks ago. And he had been coming at night. And on Sunday morning, I didn't hunt there. He came there at 6.48 in the morning, which is about 15 minutes into to daylight, and then um, our first light. And then that afternoon, he came back at 4.15 in the afternoon, and I got four pictures of him, which means he stood around for about five minutes picking persimmons off the ground, and I haven't seen him since. I hunted him Monday morning and, and from the ground and didn't see anything at all. 
like like stayed at the camp, <laughs> went, you know, didn't didn't go to work first thing Monday, and it didn't pay off. But I didn't see anything that morning. But I'm trying to hone in on these two bucks. But I do have a kind of funny mess up story um, that I've surprisingly never done. So this is probably pretty relatable for anybody that uh, has done this. But um, Friday night I had to make um, a fix to my quiver. I've got a tight spot quiver and the latch, like the lever latch on mine has been getting tighter and tighter. Like it's harder to close. And for the last year, the handle's been bending. And it finally, you know, when you bend aluminum too many times, it starts to get these little ripple cracks in it. And it was on its last leg. Well, I finally broke the handle and I've been trying to email tight spot for months to get a new replacement handle. So they wouldn't send me one. They wouldn't reply. And so I had to jerry-rig it with a screw. I drill a hole and tap it and all that stuff. So I'm playing with my quiver the night before the hunt. And um, my system for my stuff is the way that I don't forget things. I've got everything that's small in my pack, but my lineman's belt and my quiver live on my bow. So if I have my bow, I have everything else that I need, except for my clothes and my boots. And when I was messing with it, I forgot to put my release back on the quiver. So I get in the sand Saturday morning. I, I went in blind to an area that has good oak, oak flats and, and um, uh, dropping sawtooth oaks. And that's sawtooth oaks, um, swamp chestnut oaks. And I have five does come in. And I think I was texting you or maybe may even somebody else. But it was so cool on Saturday morning that the deer were literally like frolicking around. Um, like the way school children will play on like the first snow of the year somewhere, you know, just like, you know, you see like fawns literally prancing and jumping, and like kicking their back legs. So three of these does out of the five were jumping around and playing and sprinting across the oak flat back across the other way. And finally, one of them comes in close enough and um, I had to try and shoot her with fingers. I had to. I just, I couldn't, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't pass up the opportunity because I, I got up in the stand. I realized I didn't have my release and I was pissed. So I drew back a couple of times practicing and with my um, PSCs got that 90% let off. So it's, it's not that great of, you know, uh, pinching on your fingers, if you will. And um, so she comes into 12 yards at most, turns broadside. And I tried to shoot at her, and I, it must have gone three feet over her back. That is just not possible. So my point in telling everybody this is, number one, don't forget your release. But number two, you're not going to shoot a deer with your compound with fingers. Not with it new isn't compounds. Happening. Not with new compounds. With, no. With, uh, yeah, like not, you said. not with short, short sure. axle to axles and, yeah. and that string pinch. What my problem was is I would come to full draw because I was holding it with two fingers, not three. The problem was that string pinch, my fingers are actually like widening the string and my arrow was wanting to lift off the rest, you know, it would come up a quarter of an inch or it sit a half an inch off on the side. And so anyway, I yes. tried to, <laughs> I tried to shoot her and went three feet over her back and all I could do was laugh, you know, like yeah. it, it was funny. So yeah. I've done that. <laughs> That's I've done that, you know, and, and, and forgot my release and, but I haven't done it in a long time. And I've actually tried to do what you said and, and tried to shoot one with my fingers, but it was with an older bow where it was, 
it felt like I had a pretty good plan, but it didn't work mm-hmm. out. So, I, <laughs> well, Tim, Tim Wells does it, but like Tim Wells, when he gets bows from companies, but like that's why he shot Oneida for so long. Because Oneida was like a 39 inch axle to axle. Well, it's not even axle to axle on Oneida, but like tip to tip, pretty much. Because an Oneida is this, this hybrid recurve cam system thing. And but but when he went to, I think it was Matthews. I think he was shooting the the no cam, and that was like 36 inches, 35 inches, and he just can't shoot anything under 35 inch axle to axle because there's too much string pinch for that yeah. reason. Yeah, you know. Yep. So well, anyway. That's all I got. That's the only story that I have from the weekend. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I've never done that in like ten years. I've never done that. Well, so um, um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's it's I, I, the the cooler weather definitely has got things change. Got things changing. I mean, the woods even look a little bit different. I've, I, a lot of a browse is kind of wilting. A lot of leaves are starting to fall. The acorn trees or the oak trees are dropping more acorns than they were over the last couple of weeks and so it's happening you know like i said go back and listen to that podcast uh with ronnie that we that we released earlier in the week if you haven't and uh you'll kind of hear a lot of what we're talking about but that change is happening for for today we're actually i'm really excited about this podcast because we've been trying to line this up for a couple of weeks now and we're going to talk with dr brett collier from lsu and uh dr brett is a wildlife biologist by trade and a professor in uh, a number of different wildlife studies at LSU and involved in a lot of other different things and today we're going to try to pick his brain about some Louisiana specific topics like food plots, natural browse, and some deer biology and also maybe hear a story or two so uh, I think it's going to be a great conversation. Our guests every week are brought to you by our friend Brian Chamberlain, the Chamberlain Lending Team with Movement Mortgage. And if you're in need of a residential loan, primary or secondary vacation investment, cash out, rate reduction, renovation for add-ons, any of these kind of needs, contact Brian. Nobody does better. Low credit scores, potentially 0% down, and the Movement Mortgage 42% of their profits go towards charitable organizations through the Movement Foundation, and that sets them apart. Brian is licensed in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, NMLS number 114586, and Movement Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, NMLS ID number 39179. Dr. Brett, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing tonight? No, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. You guys are saving me from grading exams the rest of the evening so this will this is nice so i appreciate it already well like like, aren't we saving you from yeah your house we have some friends we have i have a friend coming in from out of state to to hunt hunt with me here in louisiana this weekend and his family's coming as well to visit with our with my family and so my wife is on a cleaning spree you know before company shows up so this is getting me out of cleaning the house so me and you are kind of uh <laughs> my we're, kids we're are, winning tonight. My yeah. kids are in there getting barking <laughs> orders on cleaning, and I'm out here doing a podcast in my office. So it's uh, that's going pretty well for me too. So I I don't I'm sure that I know that if you've ever listened to my Strutcast podcast, you may have heard an episode that I did um, with Dr. Collier uh, on turkeys, and that's something that he's very involved in. But 
it, you know, for this episode and, and for our purpose here at Louisiana Bowhunter, we're talking mostly about deer. I don't know if I did a great job introducing, so why don't you just kind of tell everybody what all you're involved with here in, in, in Louisiana and at LSU? Yeah, sure, guys. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And, 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 you know, I don't want anybody to think that I'm a one-trick pony that just studies things that gobbles. Um, so I'm, a, I'm the, as I was telling the guys kind of earlier before we got started, I suppose that the best way for the listeners to, to classify me is I'm the, the game biologist for Louisiana State University, and I'm the one that keeps his feet dry. Um, and that basically means that I don't study ducks. Um, we've got a really good biologist next door to me, Kevin, that uh, is the waterfowl biologist for the state of Louisiana and, and for LSU, so excuse me, that works here in the state. But but I'm the guy that studies all the more upland game, your deer, turkeys, squirrels, quail, rabbits, that kind of stuff. Um, typically in support of uh, the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Uh, I work a lot with uh, the wildlife division focused on information gathering that they need to to make good management decisions on public lands and and advise uh private landowners on on what management they should do um and also to assist the state agency whenever they're making uh or considering making regulatory changes um they, they like to come to the to the university folks to to kind of help plan studies and do designs and work with them on on evaluating questions so that they're not making a making changes or going to the commission in a vacuum um, and then, you know, my the other part of my job, obviously, is I teach uh, here at LSU um, classes in everything from, you know, wildlife conservation po- policy, kind of like how the sausage gets made um, with regard to regulations and conservation, um, all the way up to wildlife management techniques, which I think most of the students in uh, our program kind of call it the jumping on stuff class. Um, so that's that's me in a two minute nutshell or less. So, yeah. <laughs> I know Very just cool. from, I know just from talking to you over the last couple of years that you have got as much going on as anybody I've ever met as far as the outdoors goes. So, um you were telling us like we're going to we're going to pick your brain on some very Louisiana specific things cuz sure, we want we sure. want to talk about some food plot strategies and techniques and 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 as well as natural uh food source conversation and you know things should people should be looking at and and things they should know about what our deer in louisiana how they live and what they do but you were telling us a story about your recent trip to texas and i want you to i want to kind of i want you to kind of tell us a little bit more about that and and about what you guys were doing down in texas with your students this past week oh you know i'm i'm certainly glad and if i go a little long-winded i apologize ahead of time for the listeners it's just that it's an exciting opportunity and it was really great for the students and that that kind of that kind of makes me happy so um so uh, lo- really, really reduced introduction. Um, uh, I took my wildlife management techniques class down to a um, piece of property that is a foundation property. It's the East Foundation, um, which is down uh, south of uh, Hebronville, uh, Texas. So it's about as south as you can get um, in southern Texas. And it's, it's in the, the South Texas brush country. And um, the East Foundation has had a long-term deer research project on a effectively unhunted deer population because there's not deer hunting on the foundation property. Um, and um, 
working with Texas A&M Kingsville, um, they've been basically doing a whole lot of capture operations where they they capture deer, both both um, males and females. Sometimes they put collars on them. Sometimes they put tags on them um, and all that kind of stuff. So um, one of my former graduate students, um, his name is Landon Schofield, who uh, worked actually on turkeys here in Louisiana for his master's degree with me at Louisiana State, is the um, range and wildlife biologist down there for the foundation. And we had an opportunity to take my class down there to do uh, helicopter net gunning deer captures this past weekend. Now, uh, of course, I wasn't sticking students in the helicopter, right? Um, yeah. There are professionals that do that, um, but the students were handling kind of the... Um, the, all the on-the-ground operations, both LSU students and uh, Texas A&M Kingsville students working together. And um, it was a really great experience for, for our kids because uh, catching deer in Louisiana is effectively done one of two ways, right? If, if you're in a coastal system and you can force the deer out into the water um, where they're swimming, you could just roll up on them in an airboat and reach down and grab them and, you know, drag them up into the boat. And, and, and that's an easy way to catch a deer. It doesn't sound very easy. Um, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot easier than just jumping on one that's running, but at least you can get yeah. your hands on them. Um, yeah. and then the other way is typically we use a chemical immobilization where somebody sits in a tree stand over a bucket of corn and you, you dart them and knock them unconscious and then you work them up. Um, so it was a different experience for the kids because in most of the cases when we catch deer in Louisiana, it might be one or two, maybe a half a dozen in a day. And we were processing about nine an hour and whenever we were doing the helicopter stuff in South Texas. So it was just go, go, go as hard as you can go, bringing deer in, you know, doing all the, the scientific data collection that, that the various students on the projects are doing and, and then, you know, releasing the deer. So um, it was really a great experience for the kids and, and, um, I, you know, getting your hands, I think we ended up working up 89 deer in two days. Wow. Um, and that, that's about 10 hours of flight time total. So, you know, you're, you're going for those 10 hours. It starts at about nine, ends at about three with lunch in between. So it's a, it's a lot of hard work, but it was also a, a lot of fun. And the kids have had a big kick out of posting all the pictures on, on social media. And I'm trying to put them out on my Instagram and that kind of stuff so people can see them. But yeah, it was, it was a pretty good time for, for us to get down there for a weekend. So yeah, that's what I spent my weekend doing. That's uh, that I can imagine that, that that's exhausting, but a lot of fun. <laughs> what, what, like not to delve too far off into that before we get into Louisiana, sure, but sure. what all data, what all data are they collecting when they process a deer and what are they doing with that data? Oh, they're doing, I mean, they're doing some great stuff. Like I said, this is a, this is an ongoing kind of monitoring project because um, in Texas, especially in South Texas, rain kind of drives the boat, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you get good rains, you have lots of forage, lots of vegetation, you know, the deer at peak health, antler characteristics are, are typically larger. You know, whenever they're in drought, um, the opposite occurs, right? The deer's health go down, reproduction gets a little bit lower. So everything down there is a, is a weather-driven system. And the only way to understand kind of the um, impacts of climate, I'll call it, um, and, and weather uh, over time is to do these really long studies. So they do everything. They collect uh, briefly um, 
whenever we get a deer kind of in hand, um, the, the first thing we do is we get it up on the shelf where they work it up. Um, we put ear tags in it. Um, we take a uh, snippet of ear tissue. Co- so basically take uh, like a little triangular punch, you know, um, where we punch out a piece of ear tissue for um, uh, uh, DNA analysis. Uh, they, they'll shave hair off of it to do a thing called a stable isotope, a stable isotope analysis, which kind of tells what the deer has been eating when um, they will take a pair of uh, pruning shears, the big ones, not the little like hand ones. I'm talking the big ones. And they'll clip off the tip of one of the antlers because they can do uh, mineral analysis on antlers and look at, see uh, what minerals deer might be deficient in, you know, bad years versus, versus good years um, in antler growth. Um, they take blood samples. We had some great students from the, uh, the vet school at Texas A&M Kingsville that came down and did jugular punch, you know, and I'll I tell you what, these, these girls were good. All right. Um, I've, I've taken a lot of blood samples from deer in my day and they had maybe hands down. I'm fiddling around trying to find the vein and they're already finished. Right. Um, so take blood for genetics and for disease. Um, and then, um, the deer are moved over and they take like things like rump fat to look at, uh, body condition scores, um they age all the deer we weigh all the deer and then you know some some years they put collars on them to get gps data this year that we didn't um some years they put uh vaginal implant transmitters in them so that they can get uh fawning information and catch the fawns this year we didn't um but that's kind of a uh, in a nutshell uh the the data that we were collecting um and and I, the only thing i'll say is we collected a lot of uh, a lot of tired kids and a lot of happy smiles whenever we got through the weekend so cool. it was a good time that's very cool. Hey, if you're looking for a new piece of hunting property or you have a piece of property you'd like to list for sale, contact our friend Slade Priest, the hunting land man. Slade's a Realtree United Country Land Pro, and he's more than just a real estate agent. Slade has spent his entire life in the outdoors managing property, hunting, fishing, and he really prides himself on understanding putting the right buyer and the right seller together when it comes to outdoor recreational hunting property. Slade was recently ranked number two in the, in the country. For, for 2020, Southern States Realty United Country Hunting Properties. If you are in the market, no one sells more, Mississippi and Louisiana, and it's not too late to potentially get into a new piece of property even for this hunting season. Slade tells me you can get to closing pretty quickly, and he's got some fantastic properties recently listed and more coming all the time. Search the hashtag HuntingLandMan, and you'll find all kind of stuff. Slade's got a podcast where you can get all kind of information on land, the buying selling process so check him out and go find all of his listings at huntinglandmanms.com i can only imagine and you alluded to it the challenges of doing anything like that in a in a terrain like we have but man to have that data you know oh yeah i mean and you know our our state you know the louisiana department of wildlife fisheries and specifically you know jonathan bordelon and scott durham before him you know those guys have done a a great job on long-term data collection on deer in the state of louisiana um especially tied to to not only the the harvest data that we all collect you know from our our DMAP clubs and, and our, our private lands and that kind of thing and the check stations at the WMAs, but but also working with LSU and, and other universities on science data collection. You know, um, like, for instance, Louisiana has one of the longest running browse surveys that has occurred all across the United States 
on you know both public and private land where they go out every year to the same properties and actually survey for how much of deer browse is being eaten because it gives them an idea of deer density on the landscape so so there's all kinds of different i guess the point is there's all kinds of different data types that go into deer population management and all of us working together kind of bring a different thing to the table yeah, we we actually we've had jonathan on this podcast twice now um in in a, in our uh, what are we this is our 72nd episode okay we've had him twice and we've we've actually he's he's talked a little bit about about that brow survey in other conversations so yeah uh we're we're very lucky to have him and and some of the others that that work in our department because uh, our state you know we feel like or at least i feel like um our state does a pretty good job with its with the resources it has so you know talking about louisiana obviously that's that's what we're here for and, and one of the mm-hmm. topics that we that we really wanted to pick your brain about um is food plots you know this time of the year uh, for all of our private land hunters, it's you know it's either get them done. You're trying to trying to finish them up, or maybe you just finished them up. Um, you know, so what we kind of want to talk about some of the things that hunters should be looking at that mm-hmm. they should stay away from. I mean, I don't know if you guys have any necessarily studies or anything that you've worked on, but as far as our climate, our state you know, some, some just kind of do's and don'ts for food plot techniques in our state. You, you, what kind of information do you have about that? Yes, no, absolutely. And, and there's, there's a lot of stuff out there. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point out the name uh, Dave Moreland, which I think mm-hmm. everybody who's probably listening to this is going to know. And I'm just going to, I'm going to lead off with that. Okay. Every single thing that I say, he has said it more eloquently and better. Um, and, and, and that's okay. Right. Um, cause, cause Dave's kind of, I mean, when you want to aspire to talk about what vegetation deer use, everybody in Louisiana, everybody refers back to Dave Moreland. Right. Yep. So, so I want to just caveat that, um, you know, here's kind of where I'll start out at, um, natives are always better in, in the broad pantheon of, deer habitat management. And I think that every listener will agree that um, if, if the opportunity presents itself, that management strategies for vegetation on the landscape, regardless of where you're at in the state, that that highlight native forages over planted forages is always positive. Um, generally, that's because native forages are, are more diverse uh, you know, the, the, the plant community diversity is higher, um, which is good for not just deer, but a lot of other species, but also deer are picky. We all know that, right? Um, and, and they'll pick their way through and, and having that diversity kind of, uh, you know, um, is enticing to deer. Um, that said, um, you know, native forage can be managed a bunch of different ways, probably in the vast majority of the state of Louisiana that's that's not bottomland hardwood, pure bottomland, wet all the time type of hardwood, you know, you're talking about putting some sort of fire or some sort of a a mower or bush hog or brush management on the ground, right? Um, Generally, that's what we're talking about. But as we get into food plots, um, 
you know, and I'm going to transition here and I hope that's okay because yeah. I figure that everybody doesn't need to like listen to the biologists talk about native habitat management all day long. Um, and if they, they do, they can email me and I'll talk to them then. Um, when we move into food plots, obviously what we're talking about is they serve two different purposes and, and it depends which kind we're talking about, right? If you're talking about a, a cool season food plot, right? What, what people are putting in the ground generally now, um that's focused predominantly on attracting deer for hunting and winter carryover that's that's generally in in the broad kind of paintbrush type of thinking that's what we're looking for we want to have some lush vegetation that i i think i heard you guys talking about a drop time buck earlier if i'm not mistaken right that somehow manages yep. to draw that guy out exactly when we're sitting in our tree stand and we've got our release with us right yes um so so you know be sure you bring your release with you <laughs> yeah um, yeah you know it, i mean all the forage in the world doesn't do any good if you don't remember your equipment right right um and uh yeah and don't get me wrong i'm the guy that forgot a shotgun once in illinois heading out for deer season opening morning hey guys hunting season is finally upon us we're starting to feel some of that fall weather And if you've had some success or you're expecting to and you're looking for taxidermy work, contact our friend Brian Anders at the Taxidermy Shop, located at 2582 Highway 48, Liberty, Mississippi, conveniently located right in between Centerville, Liberty, and Gloucester. Whether you're chasing deer and ducks in the fall, big gobblers in the spring, or you land that trophy fish, give Brian Anders a call at the Taxidermy Shop at 601-248-6945. The Taxidermy Shop is family-owned and operated, not too big, not too small, offering quality work in a timely manner. Call Brian Anders at the Taxidermy Shop, 601-248-6945, or check them out on Instagram at the Taxidermy Shop. Understand that cool season management um, is typically looking at uh, a, a more of an attractant than a maintenance activity. Um I don't want people to forget as part of this conversation, warm season management, warm season food plots, because in areas where you potentially have the combination of uh, low forage availability or higher deer densities, maintaining females in good condition during the stress of um, reproductive activities, you know, especially um, whenever they're lactating and feeding um, offspring, um, Warm season forage can play a role in that. So, so I don't want hunters to think that it's it's an either or type of situation from the use of food plots. Um, it's a uh, an and type of question because they both play a role, both in maintaining the um, availability of forage for deer over the course of the season, and they also play a role as an attractant in keeping deer kind of in the area and on your area if you're providing a, a nice combination of natives and, and then other palatable uh, uh, food uh, resources. So, so I think that's probably a good place to start to segue in, guys, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. I, so I think probably w- – probably let's just let's just kind of bury the lead and start at the top with with mm-hmm. what would be in our current state being mid to late october and and like i alluded to probably the time frame when most people are either just finishing up food plots or they're trying to hurry and get them done i think probably some of the more pressing conversation uh question anyway maybe not conversation question would be 
what are as far as our area goes in, in the state of Louisiana? What are some of the best things to plant for the cool season food plots, and mm-hmm. what are some of the kind of must have must do sort of practices that you need to ensure that you are not only growing vegetation, but you're growing palatable vegetation that is good for the deer and attractive to the deer. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I guess the first thing I'll, I'll, I'll kind of spin that around on what are the, the must do things that you need to do. Um, I'd really suggest to everybody out here that if you have the time and, and interest in, you know, th- there's nothing worse than, and I say this both jokingly, but not there. There's nothing worse than l- laying in, uh, you know, trying to lay in a clover patch or trying to lay something in and it not coming up. Right. Right. Um, and, and I think that most people, myself included, sometimes don't think about the soils that we're planting stuff in because an awful lot of, of what gets grown depends upon the characteristics of the soil pH being the predominant one. And, and, I, and, and if the listeners don't know that, what we know, um, soil, you know, pH basically is a measure of, of acidity. And, and soils can be, you know, too acidic or not acidic enough is basically the easiest way to explain it. Um, and most of the, um, I'm going to broadly lump here in like the cool season kind of like uh, foraged crops. You know, think think things like uh, your oats and rye and and uh, wheat, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, most of those tend to have a, I don't want to say a super narrow window, but a moderately narrow window that you want to target um, uh, having your soil pH be at, or you're not doing any good putting either lime down or you need to put it down, right? And that window runs somewhere between, ah, you know, depending on who you ask, let's call it five, seven to about six, 6.5. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously you can't just go out there and stick your iPhone into the ground to get a pH reading. Right. Um, yeah. but, um, there are a lot of places that can do uh, soils testing for you. Um, I mean, I know that LSU, the, the, um, soils department here will, will do testing. Folks can go and pick up their, their, you know, soil testing, uh, uh kits, um, the Ag Center has a website for that, and you can go pick up your soil and drop it off, and they'll test it for you and tell you where it's at. Um, and I think that often that gets kind of lost in the mix is that people don't think they're they're so interested in getting stuff in the ground, they don't think about what the ground is, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so so I like to lead that in because there's there's nothing worse than planting something and it not coming up, and then you're sitting there with deer season going, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do right now. Um, <laughs> so and I, And I have done that. Um, you know, very much so. Um, as a general rule, um, folks putting in stuff in the fall are, again, broad paintbrush because I don't want to talk, you know, about the 40 acres in Bienville Parish, right? Um, but as a general rule, folks that are putting stuff in now for cool season plantings, you know, they're probably putting in their, their cereal grains, their clovers, um, you know, grasses are going in. You know, people are going to be putting in oats and, you know, triticale and, probably wheat um and then you're going to be getting into crimson clover and and some of your white clovers that are that are going in you know somewhere between ah you know ballpark end of august beginning of september and middle of october ish yeah that's general the planning range we're in right now um and people are kind of rushing to get that in um i think we're in good shape with rain and and ground moisture right now um i, I always worry about that i heard you guys talking earlier about uh 
you know, kind of how things were starting to green down a little bit. Um, and I always worry that it gets a little bit droughty this time of year. Um, but I think, I think right now we're in moderate to good shape. Um, acorns look pretty good right now across most of the state from the reports that I've been hearing. Um, you know, that said, uh, I, I do have concerns personally for some of the Western region of the state that got hit by Laura last year, um, because some of those, uh, riparian, uh, bottomland hardwoods were really hit pretty bad um over in that neck of the woods over towards you know vernon parish and you know the Ksachi national forest and kind of that area um so uh but you know generally speaking i think that you know most of the folks right now are probably putting in some sort of a combination of uh clover and you know some sort of grain um that's generally what we put in uh, you know right now um and it, you know, it's about attracting deer for hunting. I mean, you know, uh, fortunately for me and my farm in Illinois, I got big cornfields surrounding where I hunt, so yeah. I'll be all right. You don't have to do food plots. <laughs> nope, do not have to. It so, might help sometimes, though. So. Ky- Kyler is, Kyler and I are, as far as this podcast goes, Kyler and I are like the uh, the, the the angel and the devil. I'm not going to tell you which one's which. <laughs> but <laughs> what I mean by that is we're we're kind of the opposite of each other in terms of our hunting styles. And it's one of the things that we, we play off that a lot with this podcast. And, and I'm what I'm getting at when saying that is is Kyler is more of a public land uh, mobile style of hunter, and I'm more of a private land manager style of hunter. So, um, you know, obviously any food plotting that's done on public land is not uh, done by Kyler. Um, but <laughs> I did I did find I did find a feeder on public land last weekend, which is pretty fun. Just a, it was just a standard public land uh, trough feeder uh, strapped to a tree, so yeah. that was interesting. <laughs> but uh, dead but, serious. Yeah. But for me, I have spent the majority of my life, even as a kid, you know, going and 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 learning to hunt and and live that lifestyle through my dad, you know, hunting on a lease and private properties and. I've heard about pH my whole life, so I want to bounce a few things because I, I I am aware. I'm glad you went there first because that was one of the one of the things that I had in my mind that that I wanted to mention because I hear it all the time when it comes this time of the year and people are planting food plots and and in the summer and because let's just be honest, most people unless they're very very serious land managers, I would say the majority of people don't do summer food plots. Uh, no, most of them don't. I mean, it, it's and, and, an yeah, expense, uh, and it's a time, you know, and and all that kind of thing. Most people put in food plots to hunt over, yep. but pH is important. And and I've often heard, um, you know, the, the the things that I've been involved with in terms of managing properties and planting food plots, trying to get to a seven in pH. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you know, I think you kind of mentioned the range between five and seven. Um, yeah, as a ballpark, yeah. So, so a couple of things that I've heard. And learned, uh, and 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 this doesn't come from science. This comes from people talking about what they do, and you know, just practices uh, passed down over generations. I've I've often heard that pine forest uh, creates very acidic soil. Is that is that true? Um, yes, to an extent. Um, most of the time, and and again, broad paintbrush here. Most of the time, um, pines, pine trees generally tend to grow in soils that are more acidic. I'm not sure that a 
pine forest changes the soil acidity that much um mo there there have been some i don't want to call them old wives tales but statements that you see out and about that are probably more prevalent given the you know online at our fingertips stuff that we had right now that needles that pine needles um increase acidity um they they don't typically but they don't they they don't create more more acidic conditions so i don't think that it's it's a circular you have pine trees so you obviously have acidic soil so you have pine trees and they make the soil more acidic so you have pine trees type of thing um i think it's pine trees go grow better where the soil is more acidic and therefore the soil is more acidic there if that makes any sense yeah. um i don't think that there now now there's probably and you know if i was to dig around in the literature and i'm glad to do that for you guys but there's probably been a study or two done that actually looks at changing acidity in in you know pinelands and whether or not there's long-term change um in in you know your standard pine rotations you know right you know we're the mid 20 years third up to 30 years right now and then they get hacked whacked and restacked um then you know there might be some of that but it, it depends on the amount of cutting and and you know it's also kind of one of those things where hey we've got acidic soil pine trees go good here we're just going to have pine trees here yeah. so um i think i think you do have to keep that in mind and and that, but that does play a role if you're trying to plant something in a right of way or down a, you know, down a skid cut in a pine forest that you're leasing, right? You know, because you have to kind of try and balance the fact that you're actually working with what is likely a more acidic soil structure. Okay, so that's good information because I've always kind of been of the, I've always been of the, not necessarily of the opinion, but... I guess uh, learned not behavior either. I'm I'm struggling to find the word, but I've always kind of taken it as a fact that when someone comes in and clear cuts hardwood forest and replaces it with pine managed, you know, short rotation pine management, that they're turning their soil acidic and that they are going to have to do more to offset that when they create food plots now that they've remove the natural hardwood forest and replace that with heavy pine plantation is that Mm -hmm. so you're saying that that's probably not exactly true i'm saying it's not exactly true that is absolutely correct i'm saying that there there's obviously whenever you because you're talking you're thinking wholesale change here we go into a hardwood forest cut it down and plant pines obviously the soil chemistry is going to change you know a little bit right Mm-hmm. Um, because you've completely changed not only the 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 forest structure, but you you've changed the detritus that now hits the ground. The bacterial communities on the ground are going to change. You know what organisms that historically might have used that area are going to change, and you're probably going to get a different type of understory cover coming up in a pine forest as opposed to in a hardwood forest, right? Yeah. I mean, that, and, and additionally, if it is a plantation, you know, plantation managed pine, just as a for instance, um, they're probably going to do some, depending upon, you know, the, the intention of the management strategy, um, 
you know, they might burn it, but they might also use herbicide to keep understory and midstory growth down. Mm -hmm. um, all of those things have, have different impacts on basically the soil chemistry. So it's, it's not one-to-one, -one, but it's also, it's also, I don't want to just like, uh, um, uh, push it out of hand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, dismiss it out of hand either, because once you change a, the complete environment of a system, you obviously are going to expect to see some changes in soil chemistry. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's a very logical based way to look at it. And that makes perfect sense. I could have been making it all up too. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, what do I know? <laughs> well, I'll say this: you, 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 you stayed away from the term "wives' tale," and <laughs> I, I will come in behind you here and confirm that, at least in certain segments of the deer hunting population in the South, and some of the segments that I've come up in and 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 learned from, there is a common belief that, very very simply put. The addition of pine forest to the area creates acidic soil in a more simple way that you're that you're saying. Well, there there could be change, obviously, because there's broad change. Everything could experience change for lots of factors, but the trees themselves are not dumping acid into the ground and changing the chemistry one to one. Which that that's good because I think I, there's no way I'm the only person that's ever been told that while they're at the camp planting food plots with the old timers yeah you know? and you know some of that okay and, and we got to be real specific here okay and, and i want to be clear for all the listeners you know the reality of the situation can get skewed based on where you get your information okay yeah um, sure. if, if i'm not mistaken and and i'm gonna say this but i don't want any listeners to call me tomorrow and say I did a Google search and you're wrong. Okay. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there was a long time ago, some work on Ponderosa pines out West. And there was a little bit of evidence of increased acidity around these Ponderosa pine areas as they kind of increased in, in age structure. But, but we're not talking wholesale change right um we're you know we're talking that um when the pine needles fall off of a tree they obviously change in their ph a little bit because they're no longer being supported by the tree but you know if you're drilling them into the soil like you know they're falling off the tree and you're going out and disking between the rows yeah, you might change the soil a little bit, but we're not, we're, you're not going to, and I'm going to say this right now, you're not going to see wholesale pH change of soils by planting a pine forest. That's not going to happen. Okay, good. And I'll put myself out on the limb there, and I'm sure somebody will Google it and, and yell at me. Well, and that's okay. But that's, that, well, I think, it, I think it's, I'm, I'm spending a little bit of time on it because I think it's very relevant to our general listener base because, you know, uh, pine uh, timber management and plant and pine planting and all that kind of thing is a whole lot of us are hunting that kind of landscape. Yes, sir. You know, so a, am whole, I. a whole lot of us. And um, I mean, for everywhere from timber timber leases that are you know leased from the timber companies, all the way down to private property that are maximizing the the financial benefits of their of, of their land and, and planting pines. And so it's something we all have to consider. Um, 
So with, with that information at hand and with the pH of the soil being something that's very important to the success of your food plotting, when you look at a piece of property, whether it's a, a property that you have been leasing for a long time or privately owned property, you know, family land, and, and you're, you're going in and you're doing this food plot work year after year, when you see, when you see pH changes or or maybe you suspect that there could be because of the success of your food plot um, changing without any other obvious change, such as drought and things like that. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are some of the factors that somebody should look at that would kind of clue them in on, hey, I am not, I'm not where I should be, um, you know, what, outside of having to wait until the middle of the season when it's too late to do anything about it. What what are some of the what are what are some things you could possibly look for to clue you into the fact that hey maybe you got a pH problem? Well, yeah. So and and I'll I'll caveat this is not just being pH, but any sort of problem that you might want to look into, right? Um mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that and, and I'm a hunter and I'm I'm a I'm a fanatical deer hunter. I love deer hunting. Um and one of the things that I always try and convince people to do is you can put in a food plot and it can look like it's you know, of any sort, right? And it can look like it's not growing and you don't really know until you've excluded animals from eating part of it. So you can see what the growth is without something chewing on it, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the first steps I say whenever I talk to private landowners or, or anybody that emails me is I say, have you went out there and just put a cage out there? Yeah. Because I want to, and, and I and I know it sounds kind of stupid and simple, but I want to know: Are the plants growing and getting eaten so fast that it doesn't look like they're growing, or are the plants not growing? That's the first thing I tell people to do whenever I get a question like that, and then call me back in two weeks. Yeah. yeah. And. And then if we work under the assumption that the plants aren't growing, then I start stepping down the the rest. Okay. um, Are they green? Are they brown? Are they stunted? Um, How much rain have we got? Has it been droughty? Right. Um, Are they shaded? Because a lot of times people plant um, what I would call are less shade tolerant things. And, you know, if you plant them in between a row of pine trees and you've got a, a 40, you know, 40 foot wide right away, they're still not going to get that much sun, right? They can be shaded an awful lot during the day. Um, so are they are they planting the right, um, I'll call it plant here, and I use planting twice in that sentence, Scott, I feel stupid. Are they putting in the ground the right plant for where they're at and what their objectives are, right? If somebody wants to have tall stuff in November, you know, that's a little bit harder to do than if you want to have, you know, some nice low-lying clover in November. Um, so the timing plays a role. Your bow hunters, the the people that are you guys, you know, that are fanatic bow hunters, you're you're hunting as early as possible. You're almost leaning into the in the tail end of your warm season food plots at that point, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to your your avid gun hunters. Those guys may not hit the woods until Christmas break in some cases. After after the first weekend, they got to go back to work just like me. So so they need something that that carries over and and has good response when everything else is becoming less available. So I tend to when I'm when I'm talking to people about land management on their property, that's tend to what I I start with, and then it also comes down to what their objective is. You know, um, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that we all want to shoot the booner buck, right? 
or the Pope and Young Buck. I mean, not, notwithstanding that, um, you know, is your objective to, to harvest does and fill the freezer, or is your objective to get that one buck to step out at just the right amount of time? Yeah. You know, those can be two different, uh, two different types of development of food plots. You know, the, the whacking does, they pretty much walk out at anything that's green and open, right? You know, that big buck might want something that's super small and kind of curvy back between a few trees so he could just poke his head out and eat and feel like he still got cover on him. So that type of stuff plays a role whenever I'm talking to people about land management because every piece of property is unique, right? Um, and there's only so far that one big broad paintbrush can go. I guess is the the yeah. kind of end game on that. So I've I've got a, a question about planting and and more of the scheduling of it. Um, sure. I so I'll preface this by saying I'm 35 years old and I just helped plant my first food plot ever in my life two weeks ago, maybe one week ago. Um, and it was a friend of mine. Um, he had to plant three or four food plots, and he had one of those spreader uh, hoppers on the back of his ATV and he had already did mm-hmm. it a week before, et cetera, et cetera. So I, it was my first time ever being involved in, you know, I think he planted winter wheat and some sort of peas. I don't know. And then it's a uh, triple 13 fertilizer uh, after it's all on the ground. So mm-hmm. um, my, my thing was, like I said, I just helped him two weeks ago and he's a rifle hunter. Um, and it's one of those things where, um, you know, Locke and I want, we want to do a podcast on how to be a good camp guest or a good property guest if you're invited somewhere. And I actually feel that the number one rule of that is to just be helpful, whatever that means for that person, just be, be of assistance, um, clean dishes, help hang sands, clear roads. You know, if they want you to, you know, spray wash spray in the box sands and do it. But he, he, he pretty much said, if I help him with food plots, I can hunt his property all year long. And I was like, oh, sounds great. Thank you. I appreciate it. And so we're planning food plots on like October 12th or something. It was a Thursday midday that we were planting them before lunch. And it's 12 days into bow season. And everything in my being as a bow hunter and, and only a bow hunter, I don't do anything but bow hunt for whitetail deer. I felt like I was ruining the property for the next few weeks by just like tearing it apart. Um, like, like, because, because everything in, and that's because like I said, like Locke said earlier, I'm a public land hunter. And what I love about public land is that everybody that's hunting that place is um, locked into the same set of rules. We don't know each other. Most of the time, you don't know who's on that place on, you know, 88, 8,000, 10,000, 20,000 acres with you. But you're pretty much the number one rule of public land is don't disturb anything at all. And um, you can't feed, you can't alter routes, you can't alter food patterns. Like you're only hunting sign and trying to find deer and setting up. And, but when you're planting food plots and making um, improvements to property in hunting season, Everything in my in my body was like every alarm that I have about bow hunting was like I feel like we're we're just like spray painting this whole place like vandalizing it almost. Now I know <laughs> I, I know like I'm serious. That's how I felt because I'd never done it before. You know, I got and I've said on the past I've never been in a club. I, I started deer hunting very late in life, 
And so like Locke and I are very different on our experience of prepping for hunting season as a whole, not just bow season. And so um, have you ever done any research or have you ever, do you have any insight on um, how that alters your deer herds um, activity or behavior when you go in and plant once bow season's already started in preparation for middle, mid to late season plots? Yeah, so the, no, there's a lot to unpack there, but let me let me see what I can do for you. Um, so first, first of all, I, w- I want to go back to something you said about how all the public land hunters are are kind of you know all in it together, and they're not allowed to do management, right? Like not put out corn or sure. not have food plots. Um, that's not your job. That's what the state wildlife agency does on those public lands. In two weeks. I'm going to be out doing burns on the Sherburn Wildlife Management Area in the small game uh, unit, I think, with um, uh, the LDWF, depending on whether they sprayed it yet or not, with my class um, to get that ready for um, woodcock, because woodcock migration is going to start occurring, and that's an area woodcock like to be, and it's kind of thick out there. In addition, on the more, I think the 6th or the 13th, I'm not sure which, I'll be at the Sandy Hollow WMA doing a prescribed burn with um, Cody, the small game program leader. They're managing these public lands year round, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's with it's with fire. Sometimes it's with brush management. Sometimes it's with timber harvest. It doesn't stop just because your like hunting is going on, but they do restrict it a lot. So as not to disturb hunting activity, if that makes any sure. sense. So, yeah, yeah. so there's a lot of stuff going on out there that the average, uh, kind of average public land hunter, although I'm not sure there is an average public land hunter because we're, we're a weird group. Right. But, but may I, I not know that because yeah, you know, they don't, they don't know what's going on in April. Right. Or, or they're probably not thinking about the fires that are being put on the ground in February and the impacts that it has on the vegetative community the following October. Um, mm-hmm. but the state is, so there is. To, to, to get at that question, there is stuff going on. It just may not be the same as putting in a cool season food plot in, you know, last week, right? Um, or, sure. or a couple of weeks ago, which could. So here's what I'll say to you. Um, there's not, off the top of my head, admittedly, I can't think of a, of a paper that's looked at the, or any science, that's looked at the actual implications of putting a food plot in on did that disturb deer, for instance, which I think is kind of the, the intent you were getting at. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that um, what I do think that the science says is based more on the idea or the concept of, disturbance in general in that the more times people are out in an area over a short time window the broad paintbrush less likely an animal is to use that same area i think that the the literature and the science is pretty clear on that however the caveat is if you go out someplace every day for a week and you're just banging around and being noisy and doing stuff, things are probably going to stay out of the area. And they're going to move 
deer in this example, they're going to move to a different portion of their range and hang out, right? But when you leave, we don't see all the evidence I can think of. We don't see them staying away. They just kind of reintegrate the area that they avoided back into their movement patterns again, if that makes any sense, as long as, long as it's still usable, right? Like we didn't build a house there. Um, sure. They, you know, they may avoid the disturbance a little bit, and there's, there's quite a lot of literature on that, quite a lot of science on that. Um, and then kind of when the disturbance goes away, they, they kind of merge back in. You know, we've done some experiments in Louisiana, um, actually at one of our Ag Center research stations where we looked at um, kind of the impact of disturbance on deer, um, small game disturbance primarily. So hunting rabbits, hunting squirrels, hunting woodcock and had GPS collared deer. And I mean, we were running, I mean, I was running my hunting dogs right at where that deer was at. And, you know, yeah, the deer would run away and it'd run three or 400 yards away and get away from me and the hunting dog, you know, and, and we'd go hunt through the area. And then, you know, the next day the deer would move back in there, you know, yeah. and we'd go, we'd go hunt a couple of days. So, so I think that there's pretty good evidence scientifically that, um, yeah, deer are going to respond to, to acute disturbance, meaning high intensity, short duration. But I don't think that putting in a food plot is going to have any long-term detriment to deer movements. Um, now, that said, if they, you know, blast the food plot in right in a travel corridor that a bow hunter is using, yeah, the bow hunter may be, you know, he may be, you know, shut down for a week or so before until the mm-hmm. deer kind of get, get back and get used to it. Um, you know, so, so that's kind of how I look at answering that. I know I, I, did I cover everything? Yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I, it was more, you know, it was more of like an emotional response to tearing this place up. And, yeah. and well, and also the fact that we did circles in a Can-Am 1000 with pikes for like six hours in a like straight. <laughs> so, so it was, I mean, every, you know, every ounce of my being as a bow hunter is, is, is kind of like very close to being a ninja. Like, don't make any sudden movements. Don't let anybody know you're here. And then get out of there without everybody knowing that you were there. And that, and if you can do that and get close to deer, you'll be successful. And so this was just like the antithesis of that um, perspective that I have towards the woods. And, and it was, I guess all I'm saying is maybe I'm the weird one because I just never experienced that type of preparation before. Um, and it was really um, off-putting to me just from by comparison to how I typically hunt and where I typically hunt. It's almost November, and I cannot wait to head up to southeast Kansas and chase big bucks at 180 Outdoors. You've heard me talk all about them. Hunt180.com, your southeast Kansas connection. And if you're in the market to own your own property, lease your own property, a fully guided hunt, a semi-guided hunt, whitetails, turkeys, waterfowl, these guys do it all. Hunt180.com. Hey, you heard us mention they're doing a late-season split waterfowl hunt in January. There's still a few spots remaining. And if you're looking for some of the best spring turkey hunting, check them out. You will not be disappointed. And some of the best whitetail ground you can find. Lease, own, fully guided, semi-guided, your Southeast Kansas connection, hunt180.com. I'll add this, and then I have one more question for Dr. Collier about the food plots. But so to date... Uh, and this is talking very specifically about 
um, your question, Kyler. Today, I've I have I have put in eighteen food plots in this this month as of today. <laughs> eighteen. Yeah. Nine in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and nine in East Feliciana Parish, Louisiana. Last week, I went to a friend of mine's property on Wednesday and Thursday and helped him plant his nine food plots in Vicksburg. Okay? So Wednesday, I got there middle of the morning, and I tilled tilled and disked nine food plots. Okay? Some of these food plots, this is a new property that he just purchased this is the first deer season will be on it, but it's been deer hunted in the past. You know, there's existing areas is what I'm getting at. But uh, in, in, in this situation, there were several different locations either directly in line with or very near these food plot locations where there were feed sites with cameras for collecting inventory on deer and stuff like that. We haven't hunted the property at all thus far. So... Wednesday, I spend eight hours on a tractor, disking, tilling, in and around these feeders, opening up, getting the ground ready to plant seed on Thursday. On Wednesday night, on the cameras, as well as with my own eyes on Thursday morning early, there were fresh de- there was fresh deer sign and pictures of deer in and around this freshly tilled ground within hours of me being there with the tractor. Mature deer as well as young deer and does and everything else. And I've experienced that basically my whole life. Even here in Louisiana, you know, you plant the food plots, and, and, and it's like, especially on some properties where they're used to those food plots going in these same locations every year, you'll plant a food plot, and if you're lucky enough to get a rain within a couple of days, you'll have deer out there eating in those food plots within two or three days of those first sprouts coming up. Oh, yeah. They don't, they don't pay it any attention. I mean, I've literally been on a tractor, you know, just – disc on the ground wide open tearing stuff up and had a deer walk across the other end of the food plot while I'm i have I, I will say i will say that back back when i lived in baton rouge um there was a property that i hunted that um had a field in it and i would always try and time or always try and anticipate when they were going to bush hog it because i would see a ton of activity the same even an hour or two after they mm-hmm. finished and left. And, yeah. and so, yeah, I, I understand that. I guess, like I said, it, it was just a new experience for me putting a food plot in specifically, but I, I guess it makes sense. You know, that's really, it's really no different than bush hogging or, um, or cutting lanes or anything like that. Deer have, have been very curious to that stuff. I, I, um, I can say to, to validate your point that even though I've been doing it my whole life, the, the general tendencies and traits of the hunter that's inside of me always has a little bit of that feeling whenever you're disturbing the woods. You know, when I'm sure. down on a tractor in an area, maybe I'm working a food plot, and I know I've got a couple of bow stands in and around that food plot that I'm looking to hunt on the first good weather day, and I'm on that tractor thinking, I am absolutely letting everybody know. But I've been doing it my whole life, and, that you know, I, I know in my mind – my experiences tell me that it doesn't matter, but sure. you can't help but feel that way. Cause like to your point as a bow hunter specifically, you're trying to get very close to animals that don't know you're there. And so everything you do from the minute your boots step into the environment, y- your kind of general foundation mindset is to be invisible, you know, and to not let anything know you're there. And then 
when you're doing land management and putting in food plots, as as the example we're using here, that's the exact opposite of that. You're you're basically letting everything know that you're there. You know, <laughs> yeah. So it it feels different. So the the one other question I wanted to ask about the food plots, and in mm-hmm. this is another one of those podcasts, Kyler, where we could literally talk all night. But sure. <laughs> um, um, you mentioned very early on in this conversation, you mentioned how deer can be picky in the way that they feed. They kind of browse around and pick this, and then they'll pick that, and then they'll pick this, and you know, in just general, the way they browse and feed. So it 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 brings to to my mind the question of you see commonly. Um, a lot of these uh, seed mixes for fall uh, food plotting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yep. you'll have a six-way, a seven-way, even a ten-way premium, and you'll have, you know, your winter wheat, your oats, your rye, peas, uh, broadleaves, clovers. You'll have all these different seeds. Now, I've heard two different strategies um, that define that process, and I'm curious your um, your thoughts on those. The first is. To, to offer the diversity, which is kind of what I'm thinking based off of what you said, is the deer can be a picky eater. So this, these does may be out there feeding on the, the grasses, and that buck, he may be wanting to come out there and feed on the clover, for example. So you're offering a diversity. But I've also heard that a lot of these fall, cool-weather seed blends that people plant, one of the benefits of them is everything that's in there has kind of its own timeline for palatability and growth rate and all that kind of stuff. So they're kind of designed so that if you plant that in October, from October through the entire season all the way into the, the winter months of, of January and fe- of February, you're, there's different things that are kind of coming of age, so to speak, and your food plot remains sustainable the whole time instead of it all brow- all of it coming up at once and everything just eating on it. And then, you know, within a couple months, it's it's kind of in a – yeah, eaten down kind of phase instead of that now you've got maybe all of these things coming up early and then these kings coming up maybe a month later and then later in the season your broad leaves are turning purple and they've got the high sugar content so you're basically providing a a a staged approach which one of those things is more logical to you that or just simply the diversity of many different types of well things? you know um Obviously, diversity is important, but but the only thing I mean, I, I tend to think that you're the idea of having a mixed forage plot's a good idea, um, uh, especially for for you know generally for cool season. Um, it's it's not if you think about diversity, you're, you're exactly right in that things will come up at different times, right? And we we expect that um, from these mixed forage plots, and that provides you know an interesting benefit in that if one fails then that doesn't mean the plots failed right Mm -hmm. so so if you've got a mixed forage plot and you're dealing with a a smaller acreage type of property um you know maybe you don't get a lot of you put it in you don't get a lot of rain and you know whatever's going to pop up first fails like that first crop doesn't show up but your second your third ones come along just fine the the other reason that i like that i like some of these mixed forage plots is that um it's the structural diversity that you get, right? So, so some of your like uh, your I don't know, think of your taller stuff like maybe oats or or wheat, right? It's going to be tall. It's going to grow up quick as to where your your clovers are going to be down low on the on you know ground level when they initially start out, right? So you get the uh, a difference in structural diversity 
which then changes grazing pressure or, or browsing pressure, excuse me, um, within that food plot. And deer will get in and they'll, you know, pick away at, you know, maybe go pick on some clover, you know, eat some of the oats or eat weed or whatever else you've got that's a little bit taller in there. And you get this nice, um, I don't want to call it two-tiered, but multi-tiered structure within your food plots. And because, you know, deer, I mean, cows graze, right? They eat at the same level and they mow it down. Deer are up and down all the time. So I think that by having the ability for deer, this is opinion, um, you know, we call in my business, we call opinion by a professor, a scientific wild ass guest. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, (laughs) so um, this is opinion, but having watched an awful lot of deer browse in my day they don't just go and just mow they like to up and down they're constantly looking around and pecking and peeking and i think that having multi-layer structure within a food plot is actually a good thing because it allows the deer to come in and and move their head up and down and and eat the way that they are made to eat which is browsing and picking leaves and picking particular you know pieces that they want to eat off um, so yeah, I don't, I don't have any, any issues with it. And I think that mixed, uh, some of these mixed forages now, I mean, I don't know if you need like 12 things in it. Right. But I don't, I don't think some of them are actually, I think they're pretty good. I think they put some pretty good diversity onto the landscape. Cool. You've got the next time they, the next time you can tell somebody about a scientific wild that's guess my, my advice would be, it would be much more believable if you shortened it to swag. We call right. it swag S- all the time, yeah. S- so, because that that sounds pretty cool. Not gonna lie. Yeah. So. I, I have I have put swag into text messages and emails before. You know, it, anytime my dad says something, you know, growing up, you know, as he did with farming and everything, or my mom, you know, it's always well back. You know, when I was farming. Um. So I just say, you know, well, when I was. When I was professoring, we call my opinion a wild ass guess. So, but it's a scientific one at that. So, yeah, that's cool. Well, all right, I, that's. Go, uh, I'm go gonna introduce. I'm gonna introduce where I think you were going. So me? Yeah. No. no. No, you have no idea where I'm going. Okay. I'm I'm taking a hard right, but you go first. Okay. So I was just gonna say <laughs> that I, I that's uh, that's a lot of good information on food plotting. I think that you were gonna have. One group of people that have already planted their food plots that's going to go, that's going to send Kyle and I the message that, hey, how about you do that a little bit earlier next year? <laughs> because they're, they're going to be like, damn it, we didn't do this or we didn't do that or we didn't consider this or that. And there's going to be other people that are like scrambling around going, thank God it's not going to be good hunting weather this weekend because we got to get those food <laughs> plots done and this is going to hit just right. But the other thing that we wanted to do, and this is where I thought Kyler was going to go, is Kyler, we have been also talking about um, discussing acorns and oak trees and natural brows. Um, some of the scheduling of that is specific to our state, and I wanted Kyler to have the opportunity to ask some of those questions, but I- I'm going to let him go with wherever the heck he was about to go. Well, well, how about I do this real quick for you? Here's what I'll say about all the, na- the native brows in Louisiana, okay? And, and, and I'm going to be brutally honest with everybody. If you haven't read what Dave Moreland is putting down, and you're a deer hunter, you need to go find what Dave Moreland is putting down and read it. Okay. absolutely. Because, and and I can't, I cannot preach that enough. Everything he has done uh, with regard to deer foraging on um, native brows in the state of Louisiana is the Bible on that topic. 
Um, and, and everything he puts into the Louisiana sportsman, I read it religiously. Everything that he has, you know, done on deer foraging in the state of Louisiana, there, there is no chance I'm going to do it justice. Okay. I'm just going to put that out there right now. Um, but, but, and, and if anybody can't find the information that, that Dave has provided, you can, you can contact me. Um, I'm a state employee. You can Google Brett Collier and LSU and I will come up. Um, and I will, I will put you on the hunt for the type of information that he has made available, uh, when he was working for the Louisiana department of wildlife fisheries. And I'm glad to do that. Okay. Well, Kyler, I'm going to let you go on with, with, with where you were heading first. Okay. This is, this is, I need, I need some swag here. I need your opinion. Okay. And I, and, and this is not to do with food plots specifically, it does have to do with attracting deer and feeding and whatnot. So a mm-hmm. um, good friend of mine has, uh, I'd say, 35, 40 acres of, of land. Um, and he is doing the classic, it's September 25th, I better start feeding my deer approach to deer season, bow season specifically. Um, mm-hmm. And all he's getting is nighttime picks of great deer between 10 and three o'clock in the morning, sorry, 10 PM and three o'clock in the morning. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to, I want to ask you your opinion on that situation, but I also, if I have two theories towards how to do that. And this is uh, uh, locked. This also might be something that Michael Pepper has a, a good um, opinion on also, because I know that he, um, he feeds a lot supplemental feeds, but he has a lot of success keeping deer, um, what I call dayturnal, which is not a real word, but um, coming out during sure the daytime. Um, but um, anyway, my friend Taylor says, he sends me pictures from a cell cam, and he says, how do I get these MFers to come out the daylight, <laughs> right? This is what he says. And it's, you know, some nice bucks and whatnot. And so I said, well, tell me a little bit about, what, you know, what, what, when did you start feeding? How, did you, how do you feed, blah, blah, blah. He said, well, I go out about three or four times a week and I put corn and rice bran on the ground. Um, and then I get pictures from my cell cam and I've never had a daytime picture of these deer ever. And so my, my, this is my, um, theory on feeding for deer and trying to kill a mature buck over a feed. My opinion is there's only two ways to do that successfully. Number one, you've been feeding on a property for so long that that now mature buck has been brought there from when it had spots on its back and a feeder, whether it's gravity or food dropped on the ground or a, um, a sling feeder type is normal in that deer's world. Um, and, and not only that, but you feed year round a lot of times or springtime or whatever. That's, that's my logical approach to how to get like a quote unquote mature deer to go to a feeder if you're trying to bait it literally into a place where you can shoot it. My other opinion is I think if you start feeding um heavily with not not food plots, but like actually providing food out of a bag, if you start that right before the season, it's a huge red flag to the deer, is my is my opinion. And you might get good pictures of nice bucks once or twice the first week, and then those will taper off. And the only thing that will come to that feed pile is spikes, does, and fawns, and coyotes that want to piss on the, the pile. Um, <laughs> what, what, is, and raccoons, what, what's your 
reaction to those two things that I yeah. just said. What's my what's my swag? So actually, I don't, I don't even have to. Yeah, I don't even have to swag this one. Okay, the 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 question you're answering or you're asking is, can how do you kill you a mature use, buck over food? Yeah. yeah. How, well, no, that's not the question you're asking. The question you're asking is, can you redistribute how deer exist on the landscape with the use of supplemental food? Yeah. Because male so deer maintain a range right and if you're fortunate enough that where you put the supplemental feed falls within the the male you're targeting's range he may come across it at some point right but just because you have supplemental food on the landscape doesn't particularly mean that a deer is going to redistribute itself within its range specifically because of the bucket of corn you got out of the landscape right i mean mm -hmm. it's 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 not a uh i put corn on the landscape and all the deer come to the yard type of thing right um yeah if if nutritional demand is being met by its daily like all of its daily needs are being met then corn is less of an attractant than people think it is it's more of a i'm over here right now there's something easy i can go snack on i go and snack on it type of thing um mm -hmm. the nighttime issue with the deer i think you said they're showing up between 10 and 3 right now is that correct yeah just midnight ish yeah it's like freaking that. hot yeah. man it's hot during the day yeah that'll that'll change here in a few weeks i mean it hit what 70 you know this, this morning in the 60s yeah that'll change in a few weeks but but i don't think that that people people generally um recognize deer from trail camera pictures that they get and then target those deer over food plots and that kind of thing all that comes down to whether or not the deer just happens to be moving in your neck of the woods and some some deer just don't that's just the way they exist just in the, the window you happen to be out hunting them they're on the other side of their range and it doesn't matter what you put on the ground right decoy of a doe you know i mean a buck with antlers um throwing corn on the ground throwing rice bran on the ground wheat whatever they're just not going to come there um there are some deer that are damn near not killable what would be what i would argue um, mm -hmm. and no amount of corn on a particular spot is going to do that. Now you're more likely to your other point, you are more likely to get a repeated visit if it's available longer, right? Yeah. yeah because, because a yearling buck is going to walk out there and man, if they find corn, they're going to be there every single day. Because that's, as you know, a, a, a fawn or a yearling, that's an easy food resource for them. They don't have to travel very far. Uh, a buck, a, a large buck, a mature buck, he's got other things he's got to do. He's got to figure out where the females are at in his range. You know, he's checking to see if anybody's an asterisk. He's trying to figure out, you know, are there, is there any competition in the area? So his mind's not strictly on just eating as opposed to that you know that fawn or that juvenile male might be so that's why they tend to show up more frequently does that make sense does that answer your question in a Absolutely. hand wavy sort so, of sense so can, so, can so, i go ahead go ahead now i wanted to paint a hypothetical that i don't think is all that hypothetical i think it's probably very common 
mm-hmm. and 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 I want each of you, you know, to kind of opine on on if I'm hitting on something here, okay? And 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 some of this has to do with swag, and some of it just has to do with logic. <laughs> um, so I imagine, and I know I'm. I say when I say I imagine, what I really mean by that is I do this. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and I'm sure your buddy probably does too. So I'm I'm a good enough deer hunter. Um, Can I stop you for a second? Yeah. Can I say that I imagine drinking beer and not get myself in trouble? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so, okay. so I I think that I'm a good enough deer hunter, or at least I pay enough attention. That when I go out and I put a a, a a pile of corn or and a camera in a spot, I'm choosing the spot based not only on the fact that I think this is a pretty good area, probably in that range of the deer that I'm after, but it's probably also on the outskirts because I'm not trying to disturb him. I'm trying to attract him, right? So I'm on the out. So naturally, I'm putting myself in a situation where I'm probably. If I'm if 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 my if if my figuring on this whole deal is right, I'm probably on the outskirts of his primary range anyway because I'm trying not to bust up in there and blow him out. In doing that, could it be that? Could it could could there be? Could you lean, lend any credence to the idea that okay? So you you talked about this deer's distribution within his range and what he does. I'm on the outskirts of his range, so eventually at some point, he does come across this food, and he's like, huh, that's pretty cool. I like that stuff, but to your point, he's not going to redistribute within his range. This is on the far outside of his range, and it's and he's smart enough to know um, that this has changed because it's in his range, so therefore, he's like, okay, in the middle of the night, I'll ease my way over there and get some of that because that's good to eat, but it, it, it's safe at night. It's it's kind of a comfortable redistribution within my range without actually getting up in the middle of the day and going over there, which is kind of outside of my daily norm. It, could that be, I mean, could that be what a lot of us are doing? Is That's why we don't get any pictures of these deer during the day um, because we're, we're basically we're providing in a really easy way for this deer not to come there during the day. Yes, possibly. Um, also, I mean, you know, deer movement ecology, as as a general rule, tends to skew towards kind of the the early morning and late evening time, and then at night they're they're super active, right? I mean, they're right? yeah, they're they're. I'm sorry, say that again. Crepuscular. Yeah, crepuscular. Yeah, I'm diurnal, crepuscular. Um, and so, generally speaking, um, you could have a spot out on the landscape that you, you know, bait in this particular example, and it's just a place that the deer just happens to come across, you know, every day whenever it's out there at midnight. And and you also, I mean, like like any mammal. Deer are creatures of habit. And and I don't think that, that, you know, we tend to think that, you know, okay, the deer didn't come today. It should have been here today. Well, if its schedule is to be there every fourth day, unless something really disturbs it, they tend to stick to a quote-unquote schedule pretty consistently, you know? 
they run around one area of their range and they move and they run around another area of range and they bed in the same spot when they do that. And, you know, they're not this, um, this pinball that people tend to think that they are. Does that make sense? Like they don't yeah, just absolutely. bang left and right. Um, but sometimes the schedule can be two dang, it can be two weeks, right? That's like, okay, I'm going to hang out over here for a couple of weeks. And then now I'm going to make a round where I get near the periphery of my range boundary. And maybe I run across that corn, right? And then I, I'll use an example from a place that I hunt with a friend up in Bienville Parish. Um, I, I, I do a, I run a collegiate uh, uh, new hunter program here at LSU where we take uh, college students in the, the wildlife field that haven't actually ever hunted before hunting. And, and I was sitting in a, in a stand doing a hunt with a, a, a young lady a couple of years back. And we had a deer that I swear that it was a, it was a hog shed barrel walk out. That's how fat this buck was. Beautiful eight point, <laughs> just huge. And, and he walks, I mean, he walks up to the feeder that's that's out there about 100 yards from our stand like he knew it was there and nobody had seen this deer in three months on a single camera anywhere on the property so that means that he either was off the property or we were just on that periphery you know peripheral area of where he was at um and of course you know she got the deers and shot under him and that happens sometimes um, got the, got the jitters up in the stand, but when you think about how these animals move on the landscape and how we move on the landscape, we're all creatures of habit, right? It's just that their habit may not be on the same time scale. They might even reckon, they may not even recognize days like we do. It may just be, okay, I'm here. I've been here for a while. I'm going to meander back over there. Um, mm -hmm. so you kind of have to th think about that in context. That's kind of how I look at it. Well, that, so I've, I've actually, um, I, I, I lock and I have a saying, or I have a saying that we repeat pretty often that deer something, deer hunting isn't something you get good at. It's just something you get, you get less bad at over time. <laughs> yeah. Okay? And, and so, um, along with that saying, I also heavily believe that part of deer hunting, bow hunting success, specifically bow hunting success, lends itself to like the law of large numbers. The more attempts you have, the greater chance of success. And um, what you're saying is that that sporadicness or that individual scheduling of every fourth day, I go to the east side of my, uh, or he goes to the east side of his of his range, and every Monday at three o'clock he goes to the south side and. It's not that scientific, I don't think. Like it's probably unique to each deer, but it's so unpredictable that, in my opinion, even if you know you have a buck on a property and you're feeding or not feeding, but you know he's around, he could be within 200 yards of where you're hunting. There's a low percentage chance that on that particular day he'll come your way, unless you have him on a hardcore pattern, which is typically easier to do early season before they break up bachelor groups in my opinion but i've always felt like the, it was the law of large numbers or you know even something like the 10 percent rule you try 100 times you'll be successful 10 um i've always felt as if that was a huge part of success bow hunting because like what you're saying is if i'm understanding correctly you can feed all you want but you're not really going to have a huge impact on that buck's decision to go that way or not for the day. He's not staying up at night 
screaming of your big and J pile of food on the ground. It just happens to be near where he happens to be that day. Am I correct? Uh, yes, that's generally what I would say. Now there, there's obviously there's exceptions to every rule, but yes, I would say that, you know, I mean, some places where, um, year round feeding is ubiquitous. You Mm -hmm. might have a better chance at patterning a specific individual because they might um, redistribute their range such that a certain feeding station is within it or a food plot or whatever. But yeah, I think that the, the, the haphazard, you know, this is where I'm going to hunt. So this is where I'm going to put my corn or my bait is, is it, it then becomes a, a test of wills. You know, how many mosquitoes do you want to feed relative to how bad do you want to hunt that deer? Is kind of yeah. the joke I would make about it. So yeah, um, that's great. And, and I've I've hunted a lot where I've sat in the stand a lot and not seen anything, and that deer comes in, you know, later on that night. So, you know, I mean, I've had the same results in my hunting as everybody else has. There's actually been some really uh, cool deer science um, on on southern deer. I'll, I'll call them coming out of uh, Steve Ditchkoff's uh, research group at Auburn University. Um, they've been doing a lot of, of looking with high-resolution GPS collars on um, kind of how deer respond to hunting, um, how, how deer respond to things like moon phases um, and, and so lunar events. And, and there's some kind of neat stuff that, that Steve's been doing uh, – with that the work he's doing on um, and his graduate students looking at actually how the critters respond to hunters being in the woods. And it's, it's, it's pretty insightful, you know, stuff. And, you know, obviously some of the first stuff was done with, uh, with does um, looking at how they responded to, to hunting activity over food plots. And, um, you know, it was pretty neat uh, to see how female deer responded to, uh, localized risk, I think, was the term that was used in that in that science. Um, you know, like repeated uh, high intensity daily hunting events, um, and it was it was pretty cool stuff that uh, that uh, Steve was doing with his deer lab over there at Auburn. So, 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 uh, what you are talking about reminded me of something I saw on Facebook posted by the Mississippi State University Deer Lab. Yeah, yeah, sure. Posted... Steven, yeah, Steve Bronson, Steven Bronson up at Mississippi State. Great guys. So, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. So they have a post from September 17th where they talk about two bucks that are actually within about a mile of each other. That like The patterns of these two bucks, like buck 289 and buck 261, they, their, their boundaries of where they spend their time are so interlocked together, like non-overlapping, but they border each other the way that Texas borders Louisiana. Like there's mm-hmm. a hard line in between them. And this is obviously a – well, actually, I don't know what time of year they were patterning them with this GPS, but it's super interesting because um, – and by the way, like MSU Deer Lab puts out incredible content um, for they, they got a good podcast too on deer yes, they do. Uh, ma- management, research, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they've got they've got a deer that 
crosses the Mississippi River like twice a year and goes over to like Delta, Louisiana, and then comes back. You know, every the same time every year. It's really really interesting. But um, anyway, uh, it's it's it, like the the dots that I'm looking at right now on the map represent where that deer was at a certain period of time, and it it represents obviously its home range. Well, in talking to what we're talking about feeders, if you happen to have um, a feeder that is on the outskirts of its home range that it visits very infrequently, it would make sense that you would see that deer less often because your feeder isn't, you could say, coercive enough to, what do you say, redistribute where the deer spends its time, right? Um, but our, yes. if I'm if I'm listening, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying on a lot of like year-round feeding. You're saying that a lot of these deer, if you feed year-round, season long, they will actually make that food source or multiple food sources that are being provided for them a part of their range. Um, yes. And and I, I don't want to say a part of their range like um, if you're a mile outside of their, their standing range, they're not suddenly going to put this big loop in it that comes to you if you catch my drift. But yeah, yeah. Um, if you've got a spot that generally falls within their range, they and, I, and I, there's 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 enough evidence, I think, just in anecdotal evidence from people and enough evidence in science that, yes, if there is a continued focus and a continued set of I'm going to call it available forage in whatever manner it is, then, yeah, mm-hmm. they could um, very easily integrate it into their range and. And what we're really talking about is is the rate of utilization, right? Um, I mean, most deer hunters only need the deer to utilize something once, and that's the day they're there. Other sure. than that, it doesn't really matter how much it uses it, right? So what, what we're really talking about is the difference between um, changes in long-term utilization and changes in short-term utilization. And... Food plots, forage put on the ground in whatever manner is an attempt to change the short-term utilization because most people don't manage deer year-round. Yeah. 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 So, think- so to kind of wrap all of this up, for, for, and the whole reason why I asked you those questions and I gave you my opinion on like long-term feeding versus short-term feeding, it's not possible to start feeding on September 25th and think that you're going to alter a deer's behavior, a mature deer's behavior, drastically enough to pattern him and kill him over a feeder. Is that a, a decent conclusion? Well, I mean, as soon as I say yes, I'm going to get hate mail. And as soon as I say That's no, fine. I'm going to get hate mail. Um, yeah, um, I would say that the likelihood of you dumping a bucket of corn on the ground and suddenly that deer showing up the next day just because you dumped that bucket of corn on the ground is pretty low. It was probably going to show up there anyway. Yeah. That's how I look at it. I think it's, it, it, it really comes down to the, the idea behind whether or not you're capable of coercing him into changing his natural, because that's really, I think what most people are out to do, you know, the way you put it while ago was, I'm going to feed in this spot because this is the spot I plan to hunt. 
Well, right. so the theory behind that for the hunter is I'm going to coerce the deer into coming here while I'm here hunting because this corn or this this feed supplement is just so good. The, the idea that you're going to coerce a deer, especially in a short-term window, into doing something that's not part of their natural distributed movement within their range because you put something on the ground in front of your stand is not a very uh, – uh, not a tactic that you should expect to be very fruitful. Yeah, I, Agreed. I, I think that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a fair statement to make. I, so your friend didn't ask me, Kyler, but I'm going to answer the the question very simply. Do it. There, there, there's nothing you can do because the reason that deer has enough horns on his head to make you want him to come out in the daylight so badly is the reason he's not going to. <laughs> if sure. that makes any sense i mean there's nothing you can do like you can't you can't go sprinkle aspartame on top of your corn and sweeten it up and him go you know what to hell with it i'm going at four o'clock <laughs> <laughs> like, the deer just don't yeah. work that way yeah, but i think sure. the one thing that you said dr collier that that i think is probably a good kind of wrap-up kind of statement as far as the like the the, the hunting tactic sort of conversations that we that we do a lot with this podcast was uh, kind of the educational thing to take away from it is to understand as you try to figure out how to hunt deer, whether it be on a, on a piece of public land that you frequent or your own private land, you do have to understand that the mindset and the, and the activity on a daily basis, the difference between the older, more mature deer and the younger deer. I mean, you talked about how that young buck or those fawns or those yearlings, they're going to come pile in there and eat every day because that's what they're focused on. Your mature deer have a whole lot more responsibilities on a day-to-day basis. They're not just they're not they're not going to act that way, and so therefore they're much less likely to pattern in the daylight because they're not they're they're so busy in terms of all the other things to do. That's what I heard you say. And yeah, that's I, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, and I think that's a good thing for people to keep in mind when you're trying to figure out how to hunt a bigger buck and i think we're all at some level we're all i mean yeah we all yeah i'm sure a lot of us like to kill a few does and you want to have success and you want to put meat in the freezer but everybody at some point wants to hunt that big buck right i mean you want to figure him out you want to you want to get that trophy when i don't get, know lock you can't you can't eat the horns you know you can't eat the well there was something on facebook the other day about that's, that's what people horns. say so but i you know at, for, for at that point when when it gets to that point whatever time in the season it comes to where you do start trying to focus on how am I going to kill a big buck, you got to consider the fact that just because he's a deer doesn't mean he acts like all the other deer that you do see. I see these deer all the time, but I don't ever see the big buck. I got deer at my corn in the daylight every day, but not the big buck. Well, he's not like all the other deer. You just That's a very logical, simple statement, but it, I think we lose sight of it. Yep, he's he's been alive a long time because he isn't stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well... We've, uh, we have, and again, it's every time we talk to one of you swag dudes, um, <laughs> what are you people? What are you people? One of you people. What are you people that knows what they're talking about? Yeah. yeah. We, we end up just generating question after question and we can't go forever and we greatly appreciate your time. And hopefully we can talk again about some other topic because I know you got a lot to share, but, uh, it's been an awesome conversation and, to your point about Mr. Dave, he's a good friend of mine. He lives right here down the road. His grand his grandkids and my sons play ball together. They're in class together at school. And he's actually been on my turkey podcast. And I've been meaning to get in touch with him and have him on here. And I hope that we can do that because I, I share your sentiment. He is, if you've never had the chance to listen to him talk at a seminar 
or any of the things that he's published, the man has spent a lifetime becoming a savant. And, yeah, uh, and yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And and you know, if if and when you manage to get him on to talk about that stuff, you just delete everything I said about deer habitat and vegetation <laughs> and from, from this and just insert Dave talking. And that'll make your podcast, it'll make it a hell of a lot better, trust me. <laughs> he's, he's great. I hope to talk to him. But you've been extremely informative, too. and, and um, Absolutely. Man, it's been a great conversation. We greatly appreciate your time. No, yeah, absolutely. Anytime, anytime you guys want to do this, you let me know. I'm never that far away. Tell us, tell everybody how to get in touch with you uh, as far as your department at LSU yeah. and the work that you're doing. Yeah, gladly. So, um, obviously, I'm a professor at Louisiana State University. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch with me, uh, my, my email address is on the LSU website. You can basically, the easiest way to do it is just Google Brett, B-R-E-T, Collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R, and, and that'll immediately point you to one of the multiple email addresses I have here at LSU. Um, I also, I do the moderate social media type of stuff. I'm moderately active on Twitter and, and Instagram. Just be prepared not to see pictures of my kids. It's like business only pictures of deer, pictures of turkeys, pictures of science. And both of those are underneath the, uh, the handle Dr. Short Spur, D-R-S-H-O-R-T-S-P-U-R. And um, you can find those on my LSU website as well. And of course, you know, I, I work for the state. I work for the taxpayers of the state of Louisiana. And if you guys uh, have a question and want to send me an email, I, I can guarantee you a response. I will not guarantee you a same day response because some days I'm just racked like we all are, but I will get back to you if you email me. Awesome. Some days you're in a helicopter shooting deer in South Texas. Yeah. Yeah. So some days I'm taking pictures of students and the deer they catch and Locke, If you look in your email, you'll see one of those studs right now. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I was going to ask you to send me a picture for the podcast. Uh, by the way, I haven't decided if you two want to vote. Whether I'm going to name this episode Swag or Dayternal, I don't know which one yet. <laughs> I'm going to leave that up swag. to you guys. <laughs> Dayternal Swag. Uh, awesome. I hope you guys have enjoyed the conversation as much as we have recording it. Dr. Collier, we appreciate your time as well. You guys be safe. Check out LouisianaBowHunter.com or one of our local retailers. Pick up some of our swag. It's not a guess. It's real. How you like that segue? Uh, nice. pick up some of the, the new Louisiana bow hunter apparel. We got the, the, some more shirts and stuff like that coming out very soon, but our new hat designs are on the website and, uh, you can catch back up with any of the podcast episodes you've missed and share your pictures from the camp, from the woods, wherever you spend your time outdoors, bow hunting this weekend, share some pictures with us. We love to share those on the community. Stop posting classifieds on the community page and have a fun and safe weekend in the woods. Thanks again for all your support, everybody. Um, tuning in week after week, we greatly appreciate it, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.